0: So we are continuing our journey through Judges over the course of this summer. Some of you, uh, that has been a little bit of a slug fest, but just uh, just to uh, pep um, everybody up, the Judges actually don't get better. And so um, we are going to see a lot of um, the Judges kind of reflecting how the people of Israel fall further and further and further into their... Into their sin, and while we do see a pattern of repentance all throughout the book of J- J- Judges, as they uh, kind of drift away from the Lord, we see them g- going right back into their sin quicker and quicker each 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 time. So, just a quick kind of recap here: we kind of saw our first three major judges all pretty good folks, actually not really much said um, about them, and that's because they were very solid and very God-fearing in their lives. And so we kind of went through our first three major judges and then um, would um, experience some prolonged periods of peace and rest, is usually the word that we see Uh, most often is that the land would experience rest after these quote-unquote good judges would come in. And um, then we experience Gideon as the next kind of major judge. And if you And if you um, held on in the uh, three chapters that we looked at Gideon, you probably, maybe like me, uh, got a little bit frustrated with Gideon. Because every time he had to be pulled into it, God had to convince him of his faithfulness in spite of him showing Gideon over and over again. Now, I also take a little bit of heart in that because I, I sometimes need a lot of convincing uh, by the Holy Spirit in my own life. And we saw God being able to work in some mighty, mighty ways through Gideon in spite of his continued um, um, hesitation. And then we see what happens in some of the j- judges that come after that of what it looks like when God does not call you and when you are being disobedient to to. Uh, to him. And last week we looked at chapter 10, where we saw the people of Israel not just turning to one or two other idols or one or two other false gods, but we saw them turning to seven or more gods instead of Yahweh. They had turned their backs on Yahweh and what He had called them t- t- to. And that's where we um, enter in in Judges chapter eleven. That's where we meet Jephthah. We meet Jephthah in the first three ber- um, in the first three verses of chapter um, eleven. We immediately s- 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 see that he is flawed. He has been rejected, but he is a mighty hero. We see him as a flawed person because f- because f- because functionally he is a mafia p- boss in the wilderness of G- G- gilead he has been kicked out of his uh f- of his family uh because uh he was the half brother of a noble family in G- G- gilead and when it came time to actually start thinking about who would um inherit they said well we don't want him to um inherit so he was exiled from his family and so he goes into the wilderness and uh, very similar to kind of the Wild Wild West gangs, kind of the Billy the Kid gangs of kind of the misfit uh, groups of people who were kind of guns for hire, that is kind of how Jephthah operated, was he would draw to himself other, other people who had been outcast and he was selling his sword for hire and so he was a magnetic personality we see that because he was able to draw people even in the wilderness to himself in a society that really put family relationship and community acceptance above sometimes even following the laws of Yahweh now one thing that we do want to kind of make a distinct line here is that Jephthah is not an outcast and not persecuted righteously like maybe we would think of some of our brothers and sisters in other countries who have been outcast or cast out or persecuted by their family or community because of their decision to follow after g- g- God. We see Jephthah being cast out of his family because of selfish reliance on Um, inheritance by Jephthah's brothers and other people who were kind of in line to inherit. And we see that because of the selfishness of his community, that creates in Jephthah a need to be a self-created, a self-made hero. And so he is described in the first three verses as a mighty warrior. But all of that has been because he has been a self-made person. Now, we in the West would probably hear that and be like, man, he pulled himself up by his, by his bootstraps and you know he is doing great, right? But what we're going to find later in, and why this whole story is kind of a tragedy is because we see at the very beginning of the story a pride because of how Jephthah had to be a self-made person and had to find his success on his own outside of his c- community We see how that comes back, even when he is one of God's chosen judges, how that comes back and ultimately ends up being a tragic flaw. Now, in verses 1 through 3, we kind of conclude, and really at the end of chapter 10, we end chapter 10 with the people of Israel somewhat, we think, repenting of their sins. They have put away their idols. We don't hear about them destroying their idols, but they put them away, and they start following after the ways of Yahweh once again. And so we see that at the end of chapter 10, and as Jephthah um, enters, they are in need of a savior. And what I love about the book of Judges is that we just get whisper after whisper after whisper of the need for a savior that we all have. And they experience over and over and over again what it looks like to truly be in need of a savior and what they are reminded of again and again and again is that ultimately, no one man or woman can be our s- s- savior except through the person and the work of J- 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 Jesus Jesus Christ, which we read later in the new testament and so judges is a great pointer to the hero who would ultimately come and who would win the ultimate victory over sin and over and over and over over death and so they've repented of their idolatry at the end of chapter 10 and they ask a question who will be the man who will who will save us you don't see them directing their question towards the Lord, and you don't also see much of the Lord in verses 4 through 26 of chapter 11. You don't hear a lot from God or to God. You don't hear the people of Israel talking to God. You don't hear Jephthah talking to God. And you also don't see the word of the Lord coming coming down in um, in the first part of chapter, um, um, in chapter 11. In fact, the last place that we heard it was midway through chapter 10 when the Lord tells the people, you can go, you have made your bed with idols and you can lie in it. You can go cry to the idols that you are worshiping now. And that's what causes them to kind of go into a semi-repentance. And so not only do we see that Jephthah initially is a flawed, he is an outcast, he is a mighty warrior, but we also see that there is a deafening silence from above that hasn 't been the case in a lot of the other judge passages now. I don't know how many of you are like me, but I am terrified of silence. It makes me very nervous. One of the things that I had to uh, learn when um, Emily and I got married is that if I walked in the house and she was in the kitchen washing the dishes or on the couch and not listening to music or didn't have like a podcast playing or didn't have the TV on, I was like, what's wrong? What's happening here? And she said, I'm, just existing, and I like it. And so for me, I, I was like, well, let me turn on s- some music or let me turn on a podcast or let me turn the t- TV on. I constantly have noise in my life. So if I'm not talking to someone or being talked to by someone, I probably have something, whether it's music or a podcast or something happening in the background because I start to get very nervous in silence situations. Now, if you've ever been a parent or a pet parent, parent, sometimes silence can be terrifying, because if your child or pet is out of sight and silent, something bad is probably coming, right? You know by the time that you realize it, uh uh-oh, where's AJ? Oh no, and that's when the crash usually happens, right? And so silence sometimes can be terrifying, and in this passage, silence for the Israelites should have been terrifying. But instead, verses verses 4 through 26 are filled with the chatter of men. It starts out with the elders in Gilead negotiating with Jephthah, um, um, approaching him and asking him to rule over them even though they were a part of the people who rejected him and cast him out. And so we see some... Uh, communication back and forth between Jephthah and the elders of Gilead, and once Jephthah um, accepts and he names his terms, then we see Jephthah negotiating with the people of with the with the people of Ammon on the behalf of the people of G- 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 Gilead, and we see a lot of talking about God, referencing God, using God as a witness. We see in verse 9, we see Jephthah talking about the Lord. In verses 10, 11, and 12, we see that the elders used the Lord as a witness for a legal contract that they were probably going to sign anyway, whether or not he was a witness. We see in verse 21, we see that the Lord is acknowledged as a victory giver of some conquests that happened in the past. We see in verses 23 and 24 an acknowledgement of the Lord's provision. And this is just a little side note and a little bit of a pet peeve as you read through uh, verses 4 through 26. When he gets to the part about the Red Sea, he kind of talks about it like it was just a road that they walked on, and then they came upon the Red Sea, and then they they continued on. And He acknowledges God in several other places, but he doesn't acknowledge that God was the one who not only parted the Red Sea, made the way for them to walk across on dry land as they fled Egypt, but also as soon as they were across, he consumed the um, Egyptian army. If there was a place to acknowledge God, I feel like that would have been just a a really low-hanging fruit fruit there. So that was just a little bit of a pet peeve there, a little bit of a red flag that when you have a God-sized lack of acknowledgement, that's a red flag for what's going to happen later on in this passage. There is a culture of not acknowledging God in all the ways that he needs to be um, um, acknowledged in Israel, and that will come back a little later on because it will demonstrate just a lack of understanding of who God is. And so all the way up to verse 26, we see a lot of chatter back and forth between Jephthah and the elders, and then between Jephthah and the people of Ammon, and they're going back and forth. And right when you get to like verse 26, 27, uh, let's read uh, verses 27 through 29 together. So starting in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And the king of the um, Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So it takes until verse 29 of this story of Jephthah for him to not acknowledge how God has worked in the past, somewhat, right? We've already acknowledged some of the places where he didn't acknowledge how God had worked in the past, but... It takes until verse 29 for Jephthah to acknowledge to his enemies who he has on his s- s- side. He finally acknowledges God will decide this day between us. And it, and it is in that moment that Jephthah d- d- demonstrates the faith that is necessary for God to work on his behalf. And we see um, in verse 30, we see the Spirit of the Lord coming, coming, coming upon him. And so we see the spirit of the Lord coming, coming upon him, but we also should note the glaring silence that we have from, from above. The silence from above is not a tacit approval. It is not condo- uh, condoning all of the actions that happen there and happen in the future. Sometimes God lets us make our bed and lie in it. And if we choose to not seek him in all that we do, he will say, as he did in chapter 10, go cry out to the gods that you have made for yourselves. And so we end this kind of section thinking, okay, Jephthah's turned a corner. He has turned a corner. He has acknowledged God's power. He has acknowledged God's power. He's not necessarily talking to him or hearing from him just yet, but, but, the, but the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. So now we're going to see Jephthah really do some amazing things for the Lord. And that's when we come upon an extremely and tragic, unnecessary vow. Jephthah, almost immediately after we read about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him in verse, in verse 29... In verse 30, he um, immediately says, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give me, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be th- the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And so the first time that we see him talking to the Lord is when He makes a vow that is totally unnecessary. How often do we try to add things to what God has called us to? God, I know that you'll make a way, but here's my contingency plan just in case your power is not quite enough, right? The deafening silence from above should be a little bit of a red flag because in all the other cases of the judges that we've read, the major judges that we read, we hear from God and we see them communicating back and forth with each other. The lack of communication between Jephthah and the Lord should be a red flag to all of us, should be a warning to all of us that when we choose to not seek the counsel of the Lord, when we choose to walk in our own strength instead of what God has called us to, that that is a treacherous path to walk. We see with other d- d- judges, we see with, um, we, we see with Othniel in ch- chapter 3, we see that the Lord raised him up. We see in Ehud chapter 3 um, that the Lord raised up a d- d- deliverer. We see with d- d- Deborah later on, she was a prophetess. A prophet is what? the mouthpiece of the Lord. So not only was she hearing from the Lord, but she was communing with him as well. Lots of communication back and forth. With Gideon, we almost see a frustrating amount of communication. We see Gideon going back and forth with the Lord, wrestling with the call that the Lord has put on his life. And these were the good and the okay judges who were flawed, but they were, still, they were still seeking after what the Lord had for them. And so this unnecessary vow that Jephthah makes should not surprise us because from the beginning he has not really sought after the Lord's will in his life. He has made a way for himself in the wilderness. He has been a people person. He's able to communicate well. He is able to fight and win battles well. So from a human perspective, he's the perfect candidate to be a savior. And he's also a perfect candidate to do it in his own power. He's overcome odds before in battles, and so he can overcome odds again. Having God on his side is just one more asset to add to him. And so, the writer doesn't necessarily expound a ton when, uh, in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah, but we have to assume that this was not something that just went unnoticed and surprised Jephthah, right? Every time we see the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, people notice, right? When, when we see the presence of the Lord with Moses, we see it in a great cloud, right? The, the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies in the, t- in the temple cannot be viewed, right? We have the presence of the Lord rescuing from the fiery furnace, looking like a bright light. People notice when the Lord sh- shows up in the Old Testament. And for those of you who are about to point out when um, Elijah came, he came in a little bit of a whisper. Elijah still noticed because the Lord had put him in a posture to listen. And so when the Lord shows up, people notice. So we have to assume based on all the other places that the Lord has shown up in the Old Testament that when the Spirit comes upon Jephthah, he wasn't he wasn't unaware of his anointing by g- god which makes his making of this vow in verse 30 so just astounding from our perspective right cuz we have that we have that armchair quarterback perspective of being able to look and say, well, I would never have done that, right? I, I would never have made a vow like that. But if you look back at Jephthah's history, he is doing exactly what he has always done. He was a part of a culture that had turned its back on the Lord and served other idols. And when you serve other idols, you start to project those characteristics and the unfaithfulness that serving an idol brings onto your relationship with the lord it's not too big for the lord to heal that but when you serve other masters you're going to project the characteristics and the unfaithfulness and the weaknesses of those other masters onto The Lord. And those are not characteristics that God has. So when He makes a vow to God, He is giving God, He thinks He is offering something up to God that God needs, wants, or doesn't have. And that is not how God works. God has everything He could ever want. Or desire, and he chooses to use us for his purposes and his glory, not out of any sort of obligation or anything like that, but because he loves us. Ab- he loves us ab- just abundantly. And so, in a foolishly worded and unnecessary bargain with the Lord, Jephthah, who again, the spirit of the Lord is with says in verse 30, let me just sweeten the pot a little bit. Let me just hedge my bets here. And so we see that Jephthah doesn't really understand who Yahweh is. In the West, we don't really have a lot of um, experience with carved images, with, you know, golden idols. Um, When I was a junior in high school, I had the experience of taking a mission trip to Western India. And on our first day, the missionaries wanted us to have a context of the culture that we were in. So we walked through all the markets and smelled smells that we have never smelled, saw colors that I never thought I would see so brightly and so vivid in all of the spice markets. They took us to a temple, and as we're walking through the temple, um, there were all these little vaults and cubicles where there would be different idols kind of placed in the middle, and depending on what you were praying for, you would approach the designated idol for that particular thing that you were hoping to pray about. And this was my first experience with actual wooden, golden, metal objects being prayed to, and when you walk through the threshold of a temple like that, there's a heaviness, But then the heaviness became even heavier when you hear bells ringing all over the temple. And in front of each little cubicle or um, area that the idols were kept, people would ring the bells. Why do you ring a bell? You gotta wake somebody up. You gotta wake them up. You gotta get their attention. If you ring a bell at a cashier's desk. When they're not there, it gets their attention. It lets them know that you are there. And so they were ringing the bell to get the attention of whatever idol that they were praying to. And if they didn't feel like that was enough, all of a sudden in the the temple, you would start just hearing from different parts, people crying out, people wailing, people yelling for this God to hear them. And I was just reminded in that moment, I am so thankful that I do not serve a God who does not hear me. I am thankful that when I approach the throne of grace, he hears me individually, he hears me personally, he knows me, and he gives me access. And he gives each and every one of us access to him. It's not about what we bring to the table. In fact, it's the total opposite. It's about what we don't bring to the table, when we don't bring our pride, when we don't bring our strengths. When we lean into the weaknesses that we have to see God's strength, we see God work in some really, really mighty ways. And so Jephthah had a fundamental lack of understanding of who God was, and that was because he was treating Yahweh like one of the other idols. And so after he makes this vow, the Lord was already with him. So of course, we get a verse that tells us they win the battle. So we have verses 31 and 32, where where we see that there was a victory over the um, Ammonites. But that victory was overshadowed. Because you know, when you read that vow, you know it wasn't going anywhere good. And so we immediately get this gut-wrenching return home and this celebration where his daughter meets him at the road, celebrating this victory that God has provided, that God was already going to provide pre-vow. And we read these couple of verses where she asks for a couple of months to mourn the eventual sacrifice that will be taking place and her lack of legacy b- because of that. And then we read that Jephthah follows through on his vow to the Lord. Now there's a lot of ch- ch- chatter among um, scholars because it is a vaguely worded s- s- sentence that maybe maybe he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter in the way that he mentioned previously, not as a burnt offering. Maybe he sacrificed her by putting her into service to the, the, the Lord. But an overwhelming amount of scholars who have spent time in the original language and spent time in the text believe that Jephthah did in fact follow through with his vow to the, the Lord. And the people of Israel continued on a regular basis to remember that two months of mourning that his that his daughter who we never find out her name went through before she was sacrificed and so what do we take away from jephthah what do we take away from the story of a man who was used by god but who stood in his own way from ultimately being able to celebrate the full victory that god provided over the enemies of the people of um, Israel. What do we we take away from Jephthah? Jephthah may have been a mighty hero, but his might paled in comparison to the hero who was promised, who would eventually come and die for the sins of the world and win the ultimate victory. So his might pales in comparison to what we see later in Jesus Christ. What do we do with silence from above? What do we do when we are not hearing from the Lord? Something that we don't see the people in this passage doing, pausing all of their chatter amongst themselves and turning our eyes upward and looking at the Lord. We can get so focused on horizontal relationships here and just making it through from point A to point B that we forget to include God in a in a situation that he is already in. He has already won the victory over. You're not surprising him by bringing him into whatever situation that you might face. But when we do not include God in our plans, we should not be surprised when those plans don't work out to our expectations. Because when we have the eyes and the mind of God, we have a lot better perspective on all of the trials that life throws our way because we don't lament, we don't mourn as those without hope when we are looking through things with a God-sized lens. And at the end of this passage with the unnecessary vow, I'm sure some of you probably started reading this passage thinking, that we would see an Isaac-like intervention from above, that we would see God swoop in and say, no, I have provided a substitute here. Because wouldn't that have pointed us to Christ? But don't read it as a lack of intervention or a silence in that last part of the passage says that what Jephthah did was a righteous act. It was not the right thing to do. It doesn't matter who we make a vow Two, If a vow is inherently s- s- sinful, then it is not a vow worth c- keeping. When we make a vow, that does not necessarily make it a covenant. When God makes a covenant with us, that is a two-way binding agreement that we know that he will c- keep. And a vow is a one-way promise that you would hopefully c- keep, if you have the mind of Christ, right? We want those vows to be g- g- good. We want those to be well-intentioned. Um, but an inherently sinful vow, which is what Jephthah's was, why? Because he was saying that his way was better than God's way. His vow was inherently sinful, and so him not keeping it would not have been a problem. But he followed through on an, an inherently sinful vow that ultimately, and we'll look more at Jephthah next week, uh, that leads to his ultimate demise. Now, this is not a free pass for all of you to just start breaking vows all over the place that you have made. But just know that when you make a vow, it is not necessarily a covenant with the Lord. And so when you promise things to God, Make sure that you are seeking after his heart. Make sure that you are plugged in to his word because the silence that we see in verses four through 26 is what just feeds into that vow at the end of the passage. When we don't seek after the Lord, we can't be surprised when the things that we do don't look like him. And so this should hopefully lead us to a place of confidence of confident humility that when we walk in the ways of the Lord, we can walk confidently. We don't need to walk boast, boastfully or pridefully. We need to walk confidently in who God has made us to be. Why? Because he has already gone bef- be- 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 before us. We see Jephthah walking in pride by making this vow. The Spirit of the Lord was already on him. If he had walked confidently in who God had made him to be. But him being surrounded by a culture of people not serving the Lord, he was not seeking after the Lord. So as we continue on in our study of Judges, we see kind of a taste of this with Gideon and then the Judges that immediately follow after Gideon of the culture really playing into a lack of faith and a lack of obedience into these Judges. But we are on a rapidly declining ramp of judges being influenced so heavily by the sinful culture of the people of um, Israel that we, we will probably like our judges less and less the more that we dig into it. But one thing that I do want to point out is that if you look in Hebrews 11 at the Hall of, at the Hall of Faith, Jephthah's name is actually mentioned. And after a sermon where we don't necessarily talk super positively about Jephthah, you're probably wondering what in the world could get Jephthah included with people like Moses and Abraham. And I would call us back to Jesus, pointing us to that faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Jephthah was was a flawed person. He was a prideful person. He was a mighty person by human standards, but in the end, he did give the glory to God. He did surrender that battle to the Lord, and that faith that God would deliver the victory and not his own power was enough faith for God to move. And that's kind of a hard thing for us to wrestle with sometimes when we start to really examine, ooh, man, some of these heroes of the faith don't act heroic all of the time. Let that be an encouragement to you that God uses flawed Broken people for his purposes and his glory because he chooses to, because of his lavish love for us, because of his ongoing and continuous mercy, and because of his extreme loving kindness to us. Not because of anything that we bring to the table, but because of everything that God is. He may have been asking people to bring sacrifices to him, but those sacrifices were not because he needed an extra cow in his herds in heaven. He needed us to understand that we could not fill the gap on our own to have a relationship with him. We cannot do this on our own, and that is what God wants us to know it is not about you, it is not what you bring, it is not what you do, it is me and who I am that saves you. And so we can have a relationship with him because of that. His mercy, his love, his patience was exemplified in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the book of Judges points us to that over and over and over again as we see people falling short and falling short and falling short Again, that ultimately our hope and our rest should be in Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you for the redemption cycle that we see in the book of Judges. God, that it is not only a cycle of sin, and brokenness and turning away from you, but God, it is a cycle of you choosing to love your people when they have not loved you. And so God, I thank you for what that says to us, that your abundant, lavish love, that your unfailing mercy and that your infinite loving kindness does not fail when we fail. And so God, I pray for anybody in this room who does not have a relationship with you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, God, that they would feel that love and feel that mercy that you have for us, God, and they would be drawn to a relationship with you. God, I pray for the brother or the sister in Christ in here who is struggling to seek your your face. God, as we... Hit stumbling blocks and speed bumps of idols of our own creation. God, I pray that we would not lose heart because you have overcome the world. God, I pray that we would be a community that points each other back to you. God, that we would be a community that points others to truth, that encourages each other, God, and that loves each other in a way that looks like you. God, we love you and we praise you and we pray all these things in your son's name, Um, amen.